Well, thank you all for the kind invitation. Thank you all for the, um, the welcome, the encouragement. I am really delighted to be here, and I am probably more delighted to be here than everyone, and I will explain why, uh, because I have just driven from uh, northwest Arkansas from 3 p.m. Friday. Um, reason being, I usually travel a lot, um, but I usually work out a schedule that kind of encompasses different things along the way. I was in uh, Greenville, North Carolina, Wednesday, um, and then I had planned to have a more leisurely route up the Northeast. My daughter is in Maryland. She uh, sings in Maryland Opera Studio, and uh, I was going to take a, just a leisurely route, drop off with her for a day. And, but suddenly, the immigration authorities say, your oath-taking ceremony is taking place on Friday, 1 p.m., Fort Smith, Arkansas. So um, I had a couple of weeks' notice of that, and you don't mess with immigration. I know that after nine and a half years of process, from a religious worker's visa through a green card, uh, five years on a green card being good boys and girls, then you get the opportunity to apply for citizenship. Um, and in all of that, you, if they say, be here, you, you, you be here at a certain time. So I, I drove... Um, like nine hours on Friday evening to midnight, and I drove yesterday 16 and a half hours. Um, and uh, I got to a runabout Springfield uh, and drove a couple of hours this morning as well. So if anybody f wants to fall asleep in this sermon, it's me, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Nobody else is allowed to fall asleep. Um, but I, no, really, I am... By the grace of God, I'm delighted to be here, and I get a, such a buzz, I get an adrenaline rush from being with you, being with the Lord's people, to preach my heart and to share my heart uh, pertaining to this ministry. Um, thank you all for praying for us. Thank you all for supporting us, uh, and I hope that that will continue and grow, and I hope that your, your interest, uh, even through my visit uh, with you, Will, uh, will enable that. And it also enables me to be accountable to you. I think it's vital that missionaries are accountable to the churches that support them. Please, if I can, I was a pastor for 18 years. If I can switch for a moment and put on my pastor's hat, um, pastors, mission committees, people, don't support missionaries in faraway lands that you never hear from and you don't know what they're doing. That's not the way it ought to be. That's not the way it ought to be biblically. Missionaries ought to be accountable to the local churches because we effectively are your Christian witness to Israel. We are not the, the professionals, uh, the one that, that, that can do it, and you just give us the money. That's not how missionary work, missionaries should work. Rather, we are an arm of the local church, an arm of the local churches, uh, and we want to help you be the church, even uh, among our Jewish friends. So even our mission statement uh, is to that end. We, advance to, we, we seek to advance the Christian faith. Um, this is our 501c3 statement, so this is kind of what we're governed by. Uh, we are an interdenominational evangelistic agency to proclaim the good news of Jesus the Messiah to Jewish people throughout the world, uh, we are a worldwide organization, though, as, as you'll see, uh, we have a particular interest in the USA, uh, and to challenge and assist the church to fulfill this task with a particular emphasis, particular focus on the USA and neighboring countries. So we do what we do, and we, will, we do frontline work. We do frontline ministry in the Jewish communities. Uh, but we also want you to do your work among the Jewish community in which you find yourself, wherever that may be. If churches are in Jewish areas, and I'll show you the map in a moment, uh, if churches are in Jewish areas, then they should be intentionally reaching their Jewish neighbor. If churches are not in Jewish areas, then they should be intentionally praying for and uh, assisting those that are. So our work is kind of two-faced in a sense, not not in, in, in the bad sense, but two-faced. One, we're looking at the Jewish community, and we're seeking to reach the Jewish community. And secondly, we're looking at the church and seeking to, to draw you into this and enable you and assist you even 
as you may have a Jewish dentist or a Jewish doctor or a Jewish lawyer or a Jewish friend of over 30 years. As I get those kinds of conversations, I get those kinds of phone calls and emails. Can you help me? Uh, I've known this Jewish person for, for 30 years. We promised each other we would never talk religion or politics. And I said, well, you need to start talking religion. You need to start the conversation. God has given you a friendship for over 30 years. There's trust in that. So let's use that and let's start the conversation. So endeavoring to assist the church and challenge the church where indeed there may be some neglect. All Israel saved. Now some have a different view and some have a heretical view pertaining to what that actually means. Um, there is the phrase in Romans 11, and, and I'll come to it in a moment. Uh, but what does it mean in our understanding? Well, in my understanding, and in generally in the Reformed understanding, it means that there was that expectant hope, what was termed the Puritan hope, for a massive turning of the Jewish people uh, in the latter days. That was, that was kind of an understanding of Romans 11. I, I commend to you Romans 9 through 11 to read uh, Sunday school class or uh, read on Sunday afternoon uh, for your homework for the Sunday school class. Um, but Romans 9 through 11 are, are wonderful verses, wonderful chapters. They're actually the pinnacle, they're the climax of Paul's theological argument pertaining to the gospel in Romans. And Romans 8, you will remember, ends, or even Romans 8 begins with no condemnation. And Romans 8 ends with no separation. And it's almost as if the apostle puts down his pen just before the next verse, and he thinks, well, what about my people? What about my own, what about your people? And he then is shown by the Spirit of God that God is not finished with the ancient people, and he wishes himself accursed for them. And he prays with his heart's desire for them. And so should we, even as the Scriptures would teach us. Just referencing a couple of verses that are there in Romans 11. Uh, Romans 11, 12. Now, if their trespass, that's the Jewish people's, Failure, largely, although the first disciples were Jewish, remember, the man is Jewish, the message is Jewish, the first missionaries were Jewish, let's remember that, but largely the Jewish population trespassed in missing their Messiah. And he says, if their trespass means riches for the world, here we are, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, that piqued the interest of a lot of theologians, particularly Reformed theologians, and they wondered, well, what does this mean, this, this, this full inclusion? And, and what does it mean that there will be an even greater riches for the Gentiles? And so he says the same thing a few verses later, verse 15, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And so all of that is, is suggestive that God is not done with this ancient people, over, even though they failed. Um, and so the argument continues on, verse 26, and in this way all Israel will be saved as it is written. And, and I want you to notice in the next few verses how, how deliberate is the wording, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And it goes on to say, just maybe one verse more, verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. Now, Mr. Hagee, you're wrong. John Hagee San Antonio televangelist will say, as regards the gospel, they don't need it. Quote from John Hagee in the Houston Chronicle, Torah observant Jews are already in covenant with God and don't need to come to the Messiah. 
take that one to the Apostle Paul and see what he would say, Mr. Hagee. As regards the gospel, they are enemies. But as regards the, as regards the uh, election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So in other words, because we have received this from the Jewish people, because, as your pastor has said, the gospel has come, Christ has come from the Jewish people, and salvation is of the Jews, then they are beloved, and it is right to love Israel. But in what way? How do we love them? And indeed, what is the Israel that we love? Where and what is Israel? I don't know why that's cut off a little bit, but anyway, I hope we can read it all. Well, there is our mission field as it pertains to this land, and this land uh, has 42% of the world's Jewish population living here in all those red dots. And as you can see, pretty concentrated where we are right here. The northeast and southwest and southeast is where the greatest populations exist. Around about 2 million in the greater New York area, 600,000 in South Florida, four or 500,000 over on the west coast. But you could go to Chicago, 250,000 in Chicago, 200,000 in Atlanta, 50,000, 60,000 in Houston and Dallas. Um, Pittsburgh, we'll come to in a moment, we have 30,000 Jewish people there, um, and so on and so on. Every major city in the USA has a sizable Jewish community. And I simply want to stir and assist and challenge the church to see the mission field as it is. And we are to love this mission field. And we are to love the people, not the land. Now, the land has 45% of the world's Jewish population. But I, I think the land itself, I can't remember exactly, but is it something like the size of Connecticut or something like that? I, I can't remember exactly. But it, it's, the land is tiny. But it has 45%. So we have works there. We have ministries there. I have colleagues there. Um, but I'm wanting, as Christian witness to Israel North America, I'm wanting this to get on our radar. I'm wanting this to get on our heart and getting on to our prayer lives. It's a people, not a land. And it's a people that are to be loved, but recognizing that they're lost. Recognizing that they need the gospel of a Jewish Messiah called Jesus. Israel is an unreached people group. Uh, Joshua, those who are into missiology will know the Joshua Project, the Joshua Project charts, you can Google it. The Joshua Project charts all the different peoples of the world and how reached they are or how unreached or how unengaged even uh, they may be. Well, Israel is in the category of the unreached. That simply means that there is less than 2% of Jewish people uh, who believe in Jesus. I, I think it's around about 1.6% of Jewish people are believers in Jesus. Now, that saddens me deeply for, on multiple reasons, but it saddens me because it's a crying shame that after we Gentiles have had this from them for about 2,000 years, that they who gave us this are unreached. Brothers, this should not be. Why is that the case? What has gone wrong? And in specifically, as an American, I can say, what has gone wrong in America pertaining to this people group, this unreached people group, to whom we owe such a debt of gratitude and to whom we are to love, to show love for the sake of their forefathers, specifically the... I mean, we love the world, of course. We are missionaries to the world, of course. But there is a specific and even historically specific reason why we should have an interest in the Jewish people. Little a little illustration by way of uh, a break in the, the theology and, and, and uh, scripture. <clears throat> my daughter, my eldest daughter, she lives in Houston. Um, she married an Aggie. She went to Texas A&M. Uh, she married an Aggie. Uh, whoop. Any Aggies here? No, okay. Um, 
she married an Aggie, and she's got three little Aggies as well. And, and that might be, uh, that might be, <laughs> I said that in Greenville, South Carolina, and they, I, I, I'm not sure I'm going to get invited back because Clemson, Clemson rules, I think, there. So, um, but anyway, my daughter married, married a, 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 an Aggie. Uh, he was at Texas A&M University, and when, he, when they got married, he's a couple of years younger than she, and um, when they got married, he had a, just, a, I think, one semester to finish. Um, we learned a little later that actually he didn't finish the semester. In fact, he flunked, and uh, he ended up getting put out of Texas A&M. We asked him why. We had a come-to-Jesus moment, <laughs> as the dad does, um, and he confessed. He messed up. He, didn't, he was skipping classes. Um, he was playing video games to whatever hour of the night. <laughs> Welcome to the millennial problem. Not the millennial problem. <laughs> Talking about Israel, millennial problem. Okay, you know, you, um, my mind is going in the wrong places this morning. But it is a problem we do have in our churches, is it not? So we had that come to Jesus moment. We had that time, and he fessed up, as they say, and, uh, and he deeply apologized, and he got his act together. And he got back into college. It took a while. It, was, it wasn't an easy task. But he got back into college, and he finished. And uh, he then went on to get a teaching certificate and has, for the past four years or so, taught middle school, which is a challenge in itself. Um, he taught middle school, and just last year he got a promotion uh, in the IT uh, department uh, in the district. <clears throat> All that to say, he has grown up. He has manned up. So let me uh, just explain what went wrong. He was distracted by fantasy. He was denying the reality that, hey, you're a college student, and he was neglecting responsibility. And the word to him is simply grow up. Now, I'm using him, I'm using my son-in-law, and I hope he doesn't mind me doing that. I know he doesn't mind me doing that. Um, because I want to say that he is a super dad. He is a super husband. He, has, he is truly the best for my daughter. And, and I'll say that without any, with any qualification. He has grown up. Now, I put those up there because I think in, in, in the sense of the church's attitude to Israel we have the same problem. We are distracted by heretical fantasy. The latest blockbuster DVD or the latest best-selling book that will give you the secret of half a verse from Daniel mixed in with a little bit of Ezekiel and throw in some revelation, and boom, you've got this blockbuster that everybody's got to read. Problem is, it's most likely heretical fantasy. We get distracted by it. We, we want to have the secret. We have a carnal curiosity within us that wants to have the secret. And uh, along my journeys, my, my go-to pastor podcast is Alistair Begg. And I listen to, I can't remember exactly how many sermons of Alistair Begg I've listened along those journeys. But I listened to Alistair Begg, and even just yesterday, uh, he was talking about the second coming. And he said, Jesus didn't even know. The angels didn't even know. And you guys think that you can go to this book and find the answer? We get distracted by a heretical fantasy. And then we deny the biblical reality. The biblical reality, the no-brainer is Romans 9 through 11. It's pretty, pretty plain, pretty straightforward. Romans 10, 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, Israel, is that they may be saved. There it is. There it is in a nutshell. Our interest, our love for the Jewish people is salvific, is redemptive, is gospel. Don't get distracted by the heretical fantasy. Don't deny the biblical reality as Hagee is doing. And then we neglect our responsibility. And our responsibility is particularly verse 31 of Romans 11, if you still have it open, but Romans 11:31 says, So they too have not been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, 
they also may receive mercy. Let's get that again. They've become disobedient, that you get the mercy, and you've got the mercy, show that, so that by the mercy shown to you, they may receive mercy, that they may get jealous. Another verse speaks of that provoking to jealous, jealousy. Our responsibility towards our Jewish neighbors is simple. It's salvific. It's gospel. It's making them jealous of what we have, doing it in a wise and sensitive way. But that's the mission field, and that's what we must be doing. And indeed, we need to tell the church similarly then to grow up from the, the silliness with which we are distracted. Because American Israel is unreached. Flipping across to uh, Israel itself, just for a very brief moment, just to give you an example, um, God is doing amazing things among the Jewish people in these days. In the past 20, 30 years, I've been with CWI for 15 years, a little over 15, and even I have seen an openness. And my missionary friends that have done it for 25 or 30 years are saying they've never seen this kind of openness and the number of Jewish people that are responding, that are, are, are knowing their lostness and seeking. What have you got to offer? Because Mr. Rabbi doesn't have the answers. In the land of Israel, David Zadok, he's a former military uh, IDF soldier, and uh, he felt a call to ministry, and he became a pastor. He studied over here at Westminster Seminary, uh, Escondido, California, uh, and came full-time on our staff some 12 years ago, 12 or 13 years ago. And he is our field director in Israel. He pastors a church, uh, and he heads up our translation work in the land of Israel. But the example that I'm simply giving you is that, that in the land of Israel, the number of Jewish believers is blossoming. He had a church of 40 people 20, 30 years ago. It's now close to 300 people in this church in South Tel Aviv. And uh, that was, they had to build a new building because they outgrew uh, their old building. And so they have a sizable congregation meeting um, to worship Messiah. These are Israelis. These are Jewish believers. This is first century all over again. This is a group of Jewish Israelis that believe in Jesus. These are the Jews for Jesus in Israel, 21st century. And there's about 30,000 of them in a land of 7 million Jewish people. But there's still 30,000 of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are ethnically Jewish, who are ethnically and culturally Israeli, and they're meeting to worship King Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. Things are happening in the land. They reckon here there's about 100,000 Jewish believers. It's hard to tell in the churches because sometimes Jewish people will fully assimilate into church life or a previous generation of a parent or a grandparent who would still, they would still be deemed Jewish if their grandmother is Jewish. Um, uh, but sometimes such people will fully assimilate into church life and uh, perhaps not even know their, their Jewish identity. But they reckon on about 100,000 Jewish believers in the USA. God is doing certain things among his ancient people. Well, that's a little bit of Bible with a little bit of Israel thrown in there as well, but we'll move to history. What did history say? Well, what history simply said was very soon after the dispersion of the first century, after the temple was destroyed, after the Jewish people were basically dispersed from the land, Jewish believers were also being dispersed, but the gospel was still going to the Jew first. Interestingly, I was speaking in Pittsburgh at the Reformed Presbyterian Seminary in Pittsburgh, and I met an Indian guy. And he was from Kerala, South India. And I was speaking on Jewish mission, and he came over to me, and he said, do you know how the gospel came to Kerala, India? And I said, I don't know that story. And he said, well, let me, let me tell you. It was the Apostle Thomas. And the Apostle Thomas brought the gospel to South India, to Kerala. Why did he go to Kerala? Because there was a Jewish community there. So first century... Early second century, the gospel is starting to spread. Where do they go? Oh, I'm going to see Shmuley over here, or I'm going to see uh, my, my good friend in the synagogue over here. They go to the synagogue. The gospel spread 
through the synagogue, and Jewish people were hearing the gospel. As that continued, the, the gospel became more Gentilized, and I might say then Romanized, and the Roman Catholic Church simply believed itself the replacement of the Jewish community. So they had, there was all kinds of Jewish priestcraft. Now we had Christian priestcraft. And so the Roman system was simply a rehash of a works religion. And we don't need the Jewish people anymore for that. And so Romanism replaced totally. And so all the Jewish people were getting kicked out of every country in Europe, and they were getting forced to convert on the sword. And so whether it be the Spanish Inquisition or the uh, Crusades or simply just getting them out of any country that was Catholic-owned, that was the Jewish people's history throughout those years until the Reformation. Reformation changed everything, not least for the gospel, of course. But it started the reformers thinking, what do we do about this? What do we do about the Jewish people? They started taking an interest in Hebrew language because prior to that, it was all Latin. And so when the reformers started to take an interest in Hebrew language, who would teach them the Hebrew language? Well, they had to go and see the rabbi. And they started interacting with the rabbi, and they started to think not only about the Hebrew language, but about the Hebrew people. One of Luther's earliest writings was actually against the Roman Catholics, and his, the title was that Jesus Christ was born a Jew. So Luther is getting interested in the Israel question, in the Jewish question. Now, we all know, I'm sure we do know at least, that Luther got it wrong big time. Twenty years after he wrote that first, uh, that Jesus Christ was born a Jew, twenty years later, he wrote, von den Juden und ihren Lügen, and if your German is any good, you will be able to translate that. I did four years of German, so I have a little bit there still. Von den Juden und ihren Lügen on the Jews and their lies. And it was a 65,000-word anti-Semitic rant, which Hitler then took to justify his Holocaust. Um, Luther said they should be put out of their homes, their synagogues destroyed, their homes burned, and these poisonous envenomed worms should be made to earn their bread by the sweat of their noses. And Jewish people will remember Martin Luther. Um, I'm not sure of any Jewish person that will enter a Lutheran church. Um, but Martin Luther is not good reading. But I want you to know, I want you to realize that the, the Jewish question did come up. The Jewish question began at the time of the Reformation. If we continue on, John Calvin didn't really have many interactions with Jewish people at all. They had all been expelled from Geneva before he got there, so he really didn't have much interaction, but his writings were much more considerate. And indeed, his successors at Geneva were praying for Jewish mission every Lord's Day. Calvin's successors at Geneva had an interest in the Jewish people. Where did that come? Well, it got to come from Calvin. And if you do read Calvin, you will realize, indeed, much kindler, kindlier uh, than, than Luther. Um, but let me move quickly on. The, the gospel, the, Re the reformation, and, and the restoration of the gospel, and the restoration of what we do with the Jewish people was starting to filter into the conversation. So you had Germany and Luther doing that. Then you had Calvin, uh, Switzerland, Calvin, Geneva doing that. And then in Holland, Wilhelmus Abrakel. Now, Wilhelmus Abrakel is probably unknown to most of you, if not maybe all of you. But he was the leading light in the Dutch Reformation in the, what might be termed the Second Reformation. Um, and uh, we recently got permission to reprint this. So please, there's copies. Cop there's four issues now. I think when I was with you last, I had one, two, and three, which was McShane, Bonner, and Spurgeon. Now we have a brockle. Thanks to uh, Reformation Heritage Books, um, they gave us the permission to uh, reprint a, a portion from a brackle. The reason we haven't heard of a brackle was that he was always, almost only known to Dutch people because his works were not translated. Thank you again, Dr. Joel Beakey and the team at Reformation Heritage Books for translating a brackle because 
He has uh, four volumes of about a thousand pages each. And I was working my way through volumes one and two. I got these about three years ago at a conference. And I had worked my way through a couple of volumes. And a, and a pastor friend called me up and said, Stephen, have you read a Baracle? And I said, well, I'm working. I'm working on it. It's a thousand pages. I'm, I'm on number two. And he says, have you read number four? I said, give me a couple of years and I'll get there. Uh, he said, no, no, you need to go to four and the last 30 or 40 pages. And then I realized, well, that's what this became. Right at the end of a brackle, uh, there is this. Again, I could talk at length of that, but simply to say the Jewish question, the question of what we do with the Jewish people was starting to filter through the Reformed world. It's not hitting Holland. And a brackle is so warmly, warmly uh, concerned for Jewish salvation and, and writing of it at great length. That filters into Dutch society. So, you, you, you know, more recent Dutches, you think of the hiding place, you think of Kari Tembum, you think of, of those kind of things. But jumping back into history when they're getting kicked out of every country in Europe, what's the country that they can go to? It's Holland. The first Jewish community in the New World was in Brazil, in Recife. There was a Jewish community about 1,500. They built the first synagogue there in the New World. Why Recife, Brazil? It was owned by Holland in those years. Now, again, some of you, and I haven't time to go into the, the detail of the history, but some of you will know that it, it shifted hands from uh, Holland, from the Dutch, to Portugal. And so, again, Brazil, in Brazil today, they speak Portuguese. When it shifted back in those centuries to Brazil, or, or to Portugal, all the Jews got kicked out, sent back to Holland. So, all these ships are making their way back to Holland. One ship gets pirated in the Spanish islands. Spanish islands are owned by the Catholics those days. The ship gets pirated, and all the Jews are kicked off the boat. ship is taken captive. Holland has all the money, and even perhaps some Jewish folks in Holland said, let my people go. And the ship was allowed to go. And the 23 Jewish souls on the boat was allowed to go. But it was kind of limping up the harbor, and it comes in to New Amsterdam, northeast. And the 23 Jewish souls form the first ever Jewish community in the United States, as what would become the United States, in New Amsterdam, which became New York City. God's providence in preserving this people is amazing. You need to read the history. It is an amazing history. But we know that it's not just, well, God loves Israel kind of thing. God, God has a providence. God has a purpose. It's salvific. Why are they here in the United States? Why do I put the map up? Why were they preserved by the Dutch? Why was there a safe haven for them? Because God has called us that by the mercy shown to you, that they may receive mercy. Now, I need to move on swiftly. Um, history uh, confirms this as important. Westminster Divines wrote of it. Again, I, I, I commend to you the larger catechism question, 191. Uh, just don't think 911, but switch it from 911 to 191, and you will find that prayer for Jewish mission in the larger catechism from our Westminster divines. Rutherford was the Scotsman, one of the Scots commissioners to the Westminster divine. He prayed, Lord, keep me out of heaven till I see this happening. So he's praying in the 1600s that, that, that he will hold back heaven, that, that God may yet graft in again the natural branches. Rutherford believed in Jewish mission um, I'm just going to throw the names up. If they're familiar to you, wonderful. All of these guys had an interest in Jewish mission. Wilberforce, Wilberforce was involved with Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon started a Jewish mission which ultimately became CMJ. That's the Anglican version of CWI. The Anglican version beat us by about 30 years, I think it was. We started in 1842. The Anglicans were uh, around about the 18... 11, 18, 15, something around there. 
Um, I should know my dates. But Wilberforce was involved with Charles Simeon in that, uh, in the Anglican ministry uh, to the Jewish people. But our history goes to the Scots Presbyterians, Robert Murray McShane. Um, I was uh, privileged to handle McShane's Bible a few years ago when I was in Inverness, Scotland. A guy owns this treasure, um, and I've never washed my hands since. And um, No, we're not allowed Reformed relics. No Reformed relics. Um, but this was McShane's Bible, and he underlined it, and he had little notes in it. Um, and let's remember, this is before there's a land of Israel, as is today. This is before Jewish mission, as it is today. In fact, Simeon's mission uh, had a Jewish believer, believer uh, in that body, and McShane had him up to preach in Scotland. And McShane was so thrilled, as, as in McShane's words, that a, a Jewish man or a man of Hebrew descent should be in my pulpit in St. Peter's, Dundee. They had never met Jewish people. They had never seen Jewish people. But God had blessed this one Jewish believer, and he was preaching Jesus in McShane's pulpit. McShane was thrilled by that. What would they say today with 30,000 Jewish people in the land of Israel or 100,000 Jewish believers uh, in, in the USA? Well, McShane believed God is able to graft him in again. And again, uh, let me just pull all of these up. Um, if they're familiar to you, again, yes, and if they're not, if they're not familiar to you, I think I need a word with your pastor. And, you know, so, but they should be familiar to you. All that to say, they all had an interest and even a strong belief in God's continuance of mercy to the ancient people. And, you know, and it sounds like I'm, I'm uh, name-dropping, okay, I am name-dropping, but through the, through the mix and mess of the confusion that abounds in the USA pertaining to Israel, the Israel question, um, one of the things that I've sought to do is to get good men on our side. Uh, and, and I unashamedly do that, and they're very happy for me to use their name. I, I don't ask anything of them. The advisory board, that is. I have my working executive board, but my advisory board, um, some of the major guys... Uh, in Reformed theology in the USA, and, and all of them are, have been very willing uh, to, to let me use their name. <clears throat> and uh, I'm hoping in, indeed to maybe use them in some of our literature as well. Um, but I love Jerry O'Neill. Jerry O'Neill down the bottom, uh, he's the president. He's retired, um, although he's still working a little bit at RPTS Pittsburgh. And he says, the mission of Christian witness to Israel is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jewish people. I love that mission, and I love the theology that lies behind it. And I love that quote because I, I love him emphasizing that theology drives missiology. And where you get your theology wrong, you'll get your mission wrong. If you get your theology from John Hagee, as indeed some PCA guys do. I've been in PCA churches, and they'll say to me, oh, John Hagee, he's a great, he loves Israel, doesn't he? No, he doesn't, because he deliberately won't evangelize the Jewish people. He deliberately withholds the gospel from the Jewish people. How can you love Israel if you're content to let them go to a lost eternity? That is not loving Israel. Loving Israel is intentionally sharing the gospel with them, as they did with us. They didn't leave us alone. I had an interaction with a rabbi. I think I probably told you maybe the last visit I was here. But I had an interaction with a rabbi basically simply saying to him, you know, he, he was telling me, leave us alone. Just stand with us, support us, blah, blah, blah. He said, but leave us alone. And I knew what he meant. And I took him to Psalm 67, and I said, but you didn't leave us alone. You Jewish people 3,000 years ago were praying for the Gentile world. You didn't leave us alone. Thank God you didn't. And we won't leave you alone. Or as I've said before in the words of Liam Neeson, I will find you. <laughs> and I will tell you about Jesus. <laughs> There's a theology behind everything, isn't there? You, I, you don't need me to share that with you. But this theology, the right theology, will drive our missiology. We believe in telling Jewish people about the gospel. Now, next slide, I'm going to show you my new worker in Pittsburgh. Uh, Mitch Tepper is a Jewish believer of over 30 years experience, Christian experience, 40 years Christian experience. Um, and uh, Mitch is uh, doing street evangelism in Pittsburgh. But 
about a year ago, I was, uh, yeah, I think it was last, last December, because this was the last night of Hanukkah in the Jewish deli in Delray Beach, Florida. I'm in Delray. People ask me, you know, do you go to Israel often? I say, I don't need to. I just need to go to Delray Beach. I'm there. I think I was the only Gentile in the restaurant. This was the Jewish. I'd never seen the plateful as big as this in the Jewish deli. And this is Mitch's dad. Mitch's dad is 94. Please pray for him. Mitch's dad is a Jewish atheist. He believes he's worm fodder. Said as much. And I interacted with him. Mitch obviously interacts with him more often than I do. And we had some connection. And I, I shared with him, you know, you don't believe all this stuff. I know you don't. I want you to know that Mitch is a good boy. And, and Jewish people want to know that their boy is, he thinks upon Mitch as a traitor. I said, look, you know, you, he, he's a good boy. I said, I, I, I'm using him well. And uh, I said, I know you don't believe all of this, but I said, I just want to say this. On behalf of the Gentiles, I want to thank you as a Jewish man because from you, from the Jewish people, has come the greatest thing that has changed my life and the life of my family. And I want to express my thanks to you. And we kind of had a moment. We kind of had a connect. Um, and I later wrote him a longer letter with Isaiah 53 and other verses in it. Um, so we're, we're he's, he's still as far as ever, as far as we understand. But we're praying for him. So pray for Mr. Tepper and many others that are there in that room that are just living the life of uh, pursuing life, liberty, and the pursuit of Jewishness, as uh, is often the case. We hired Mitch 1st of October last year. Um, again, this comes about, we hire folks when we get the funds. And I, I, I don't want to plead the funds uh, situation, but we can only do, we can only be the arm of the church so far as we are enabled and, and the work grows to be the arm of the church. But we had enough funds, thank the Lord, to be able to hire and subsidize. Now, Mitch is raising his support, uh, but for the first couple of years, we subsidized from our uh, reserve funds. And so we were able to hire. We hired him 1st of October. Three weeks later, the deadliest anti-Semitic attack on U.S. soil and U.S. history happened where? Squirrel Hill, Pittsburgh. Now, I was thinking, Lord, you've given me, a, because I met him at the seminary uh, three or four years ago, and I'm thinking, Lord, you gave me a, a, a missionary for Pittsburgh, but Pittsburgh's only got 30,000 Jewish people. You know, Delray Beach has 600, or South Florida has 600,000, and, uh, you know, New York and Chicago and Atlanta, and, uh, but he gives me a missionary to Pittsburgh. And three weeks later, Squirrel Hill happens. And so he was boots on the ground for us in Squirrel Hill. He has visited the synagogue where it took place. Uh, they're not meeting there anymore. They're obviously, they're, they're scattered among a couple, some other synagogues. But uh, he has been there as, as boots on the ground. And even on Thursdays, pray for him every Thursday. Every Thursday afternoon, he is on the streets of Squirrel Hill, Pittsburgh at this corner. I was there with him a couple of weeks ago, uh, maybe a month ago. And I was with him again in the spring um, as I try to get up you know, once in a while. But we're there on uh, the street, the street corner. It's a, it's a nice area. There's a couple of park benches. And uh, here he met one of the widows of that attack. And he shared his testimony with her. Um, and he prayed for her on the street. And he gave her his contact details. Um, so this is our Christian witness to grieving Israel, as we find it even in Squirrel Hill, Pittsburgh. So. He'd be there. There'll be some students, perhaps, volunteers from the uh, Reformed Seminary or volunteers from the church, um, uh, churches nearby. And what they do, and I'll, uh, you know, well, I'll just explain it. He has a shalom board. He puts this shalom board up and just asks everyone passing by one question. And people are often okay with answering one question. Can you tell me what brings peace in the world? What brings shalom? And they'll write a lot of stuff. As you can see, people are very willing to give their answers on the little post-it notes, and we put them up on the board. And they can either just do that and walk on, or they can engage in conversation. And many, many conversations have taken place, and even some have professed faith right there. Now, again, we want to disciple, and we're always a little wary of, of those kind of professions on the spot. 
But folks have prayed to receive Jesus. Jewish people have prayed on the street corner of Squirrel Hill. This is Christian witness to Israel. And uh, so continue to pray uh, that that witness would, uh, would be prospering, spiritually prospering. In addition to that Thursday, we've also got a Friday night meeting in Mitch's home. Friday night in the Jewish home is, uh, is, is Friday night in the Jewish home. It's Shabbat Shalom. It's, it's a Friday night dinner. It's a, it's a family gathering. Well, we have a Shabbat evening meeting in Mitch's home, and sometimes there's 12, 15 people, 20 people even sometimes. Uh, Jewish people, Jewish believers, Jewish not yet believers, Gentiles, they all gather uh, and Mitch will preach about Jesus. Now, top left, lady in the blue, is uh, an unconverted Jewish person. She comes every week. She's ev she loves Mitch and Mia. She knows Mitch's wife, um, and uh, she comes along every week. Uh, she's, I, I had a, an hour-long conversation with her one time when I was visiting and uh, really wasn't getting anywhere. Uh, she's, she just doesn't see. She has the veil over her eyes. And until that is removed, no one sees. Um, but she uh, listens to Mitch preach about Jesus. But it's funny, a couple of weeks ago, Mitch was saying, you know, I don't think her, her name, I don't know if we're recording this, but um, uh, I'll just say her name is B. I'll put B there for the, the initial. And uh, uh, she, she said, Mitch, you know, you talk a lot about uh, Jesus and you talk a lot about Yeshua. Who are these two guys? And I started wondering, Mitch, what actually are you preaching, brother? <laughs> she, uh, uh, something wrong there. So she's a little confused. But she's listening. She's, she's, she's wanting, she's willing, she wants friendship even. You know, it's funny, um, how, how does anyone come to faith? It's, it's very often through friendship evangelism. Jewish people get old, they get sick, they get lonely. We're there. We're there to bring Jesus, and to provoke to jealousy. Other missionaries around uh, the world, again, uh, without, I could tell lots of different stories. Please take our international magazine. Uh, there are several issues of it there. Please take them all. Make my uh, car journey a little lighter in the way back. But uh, lots of great stories of Jewish people hearing the gospel, even coming to faith in Christ. Uh, Orel is on the streets of Paris with the man in black, the Orthodox community in Paris. Asaf is on the streets of Amsterdam on the right, and a good Dutch brother. Um, and uh, he also speaks fluent modern Hebrew. He spent time in Israel as well. Aviel down the, the, the bottom, uh, I just learned, I think, yesterday, a couple of days ago, that Aviel is coming over to Northern Ireland to do a tour of churches in Northern Ireland. And I'm so jealous. I wish I was with him. But Aviel is from Israel. And uh, one of his wonderful ministries is, is speaking to Holocaust survivors. And I remember him uh, speaking to me not so long ago about uh, how uh, they're running out of time. So here was a recent meeting in Israel uh, to uh, Holocaust survivors and their families. And he's speaking about Jesus to the Holocaust survivors. They've survived one Holocaust. There's another one. There's another one. And so pray for this intentional ministry. That's not all of us, but it was one of the recent photos at head office in the UK um, with a, a goodly number of us, but not all. And, uh, uh, but we have an intentionality. One of the things that struck Mitch was when his mother died a year ago, Mother's Day. It's not a great day for your mother to pass, but Mitch's mother died a year ago, Mother's Day. Um, and he said she did not know her Messiah. And from then, and then we had a conversation, and then he became an, a worker with us. That kind of was the catalyst for him to think about intentionality. And so he's intentional with his dad down in South Florida. So he goes down to South Florida four times a year. We send him down on, on uh, I, I, I think it's, it's the cheap airline. It's 100 bucks or something, I think, gets him a flight from Pittsburgh. To, uh, to, to Fort Lauderdale, and he goes on and he stays with his dad and uses his dad's car, and uh, he engages in street ministry in South Florida as well, 
um, and talks to his dad, talks to other folks. He met a, a guy at the, the, the gym uh, called Jay. Pray for Jay. Jay is an Orthodox guy. Jay went along with Mitch to the Purim celebration last year, and it was a crazy Purim celebration because the, uh, there was a rabbi, an imam, a Unitarian, and uh, I can't remember what was the, the fourth. But they were all there arm in arm in the synagogue celebrating Purim. And they sang as part of the service John Lennon's Imagine. Mitch and Jay that he had just met at the gym went along to this. Jay was from the Northeast as well, and he had just been visiting his dad. He was Orthodox Jewish, and he comes into this Purim setting, and he's appalled. And it gave Mitch an opportunity to talk with him about liberal Judaism and real, fulfilled Judaism, which is Jesus. Well, our time is gone, but... Uh, this is your Christian witness to Israel, and we want you to participate with us. We want you to pray for us. We want you to partner us in doing what we do, because how shall they hear? Again, Romans 10 is all about Jewish mission, remember? We can use that verse with regard to missionary work, but it's really about Jewish mission in Romans 10. How shall they hear unless someone preaches to them? And it is indeed that by the mercy shown to you that they may receive mercy. Sorry, I've gone a little over time, but uh, we didn't start on time, so that's okay. <laughs> Do you want a Q&A for two minutes? Will there be time for that? or Just if there are any. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are about six million. Six million. There are about six million, yeah. So two million in New York City is, is the major, yeah. uh, but 600,000 in South Florida, 400 or so in West Coast, so you've almost got the 3 million on the East Coast, West Coast. But it's around about 6 million, yeah. Yeah, well, it's just like any other non-profit. It's like a church. It, we, we all have not-for-profit status, not non-profit status. Yeah. So, yeah, we, 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 we send in our, our returns, our, our uh, federal and state returns. My wife is the accountant. She's a qualified accountant, so she does all of that stuff, and I leave that in her capable hands. But, yeah, no, we do need to report to the government. And <clears throat> I, I know there's comment about, you know, churches and not-for-profits losing that status, uh, I don't know. Uh, at the moment, we're, we're enjoying that status, and we will do so. But we will not be government. Uh, we will not be at the behest of government, let's say, if it contradicts our calling. Um, and if that means, and I think I'm sure that's the same for churches, if it means we lose our status, so be it. Um, uh, but we will not uh, in any way uh, lessen the ministry that we're doing. Yeah, I, I think it, it. I think Israel is seeing. It, it's hard to quantify these things, and I, I'm I'm a Scots Irish um, that that I'm somewhat suspicious of numbers. So um, I don't want to simply to say, well, this one got converted, and we've chalked up so many conversions. I, I don't I don't want to put it that way, but I I think the reality is, in the U.S., something happened around the '60s and '70s in the Jesus movement. And Jews for Jesus came into being, and other missionary organizations to the Jewish people came into being. And, and while we may have, um, you know, we have a different theology to uh, those ministries, but we, we respect them, we work with them in certain places. But something definitely happened around the 60s, 70s, maybe 80s in the Jewish population in the U.S. I think it's fair to say that maybe even more recently in Israel, I would say the, the last 10 to 15 in Israel, there has been a great influx, particularly among the Russian-speaking. Of uh, there's about seven and a half, seven seven and a half million Jewish people in Israel. One million of those are Russian-speaking, and they have been very receptive uh, to the, the gospel. In fact, I didn't show you here, but um, in our magazine, 
Uh, Abiel, indeed, is, is Russian-speaking originally. Uh, Egal is another one of our street missionaries, uh, and you can read of Egal in our newsletter. Egal works in the rehab center. With uh, Egal is a, uh, a converted uh, ex-drug addict. He spent time in prison for heroin uh, addiction um, crimes. And Egal is, again, Russian-speaking, but gloriously converted. He's a gentle giant. I've met him a couple of times. Um, and he goes into the rehab center and shares the gospel with those that, whose lives are really messed up. Um, so I would simply say that Israel has been a little closer to the present. I think my, my, my buddies there would say they are experiencing an openness really the past 10 or 15 years, unlike what they've seen. I think in America, it's probably going back maybe to the 70s, 80s, was a, a great time of, of in-gathering and, and subsequently. Yes, absolutely. Yes, totally. Yeah, it depends whether you. It depends who you're talking to. Jewish people are, Jewish people are just like everyone else, only more so is the little saying. But Jewish people are are 57 varieties. So there could be the Torah observant, there could be the Talmudic, or there could be the total atheist, like yeah, Mitch's dad. So you need to find out exactly where they are first. Um, you're absolutely right. The rabbis have reinterpreted everything. So we can't, when we read our Bibles and we think the Jewish people do this, this, and this, no, they don't. Um, don't assume you know what Jewishness is just because you know what your Bible says. Rabbinic Judaism is, is a whole different deal. Um, and so it may be necessary for some of us to, be become, to become more versed in Talmudic Judaism, I, I'm not, but I, I, you know, I know a little, but um, some of our other guys are, are real experts in it, and that's great. Um, you can't know all the answers, but I, I would simply say to, to, to all of you, don't think that all those Jews, if I, if I was to meet a Jewish person, oh, that person will know so much more than I do. I, I, don't, I don't know all of this old time. They probably won't. They probably won't. Your Sunday school kids will probably know more than the average Jewish person. Um, so uh, don't be put off. Don't think that they're going to be experts. But some will. They'll have an answer for Isaiah 53 uh, if they've even read it. Most won't even have read it. And most of you, if, if you find a Jewish person and you say, hey, can I read you a bit from the prophet Isaiah? They may say, yeah, sure. And, they'll, and if you read it, they would, that sounds like the New Testament. That sounds like your Jesus guy. And we'll say, yeah, but it was 700 years before you're Jesus guy. <laughs> um, so most of them will not know. So open up your Bible. Open up their Bibles. Their Bible is the same as ours, only it hasn't got the New Testament. Don't call it an Old Testament. Call it the Hebrew Scriptures. Just again, tweak the words sometimes. Reason being, if you call it the Old Testament, they'll think you're looking down your noses at them. They'll think, oh yeah, you, you've got the old clunker, we've got the new model which we do have, <laughs> but the old came with glory, says the scriptures. The old came with glory, so have a reverence. Jesus never spoke of the Old Testament. Jesus spoke of the law, the prophets, and the writings. So use that. In fact, if you're going to be really smart, <clears throat> use the word Tanakh. The Jewish people talk about their Tanakh. That simply means the Old Testament in our parlance. The Tanakh is Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, T-N-K, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, which is the law, the prophets, the writings. So they put that together into a word, and they simply say it's the T-N-K, it's the Tanakh. If you hear a Jewish person talking about that, they simply mean the Old Testament. So you might say, I was reading in the Tanakh um, about the prophet Isaiah. I was reading about Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah said there was going to be a new covenant with the house of Israel. What? Really? Yeah. You know, Jeremiah 31. It says there's a new covenant. I wonder what that is. Does you, has your rabbis ever said about a new covenant? So you see where that can go. Or you can take them. Now, the Torah observant ones, the, the very strict men in black, will largely have a greater reverence for the first five books than the prophets in the writing. So Moses is their guy. So they will say, Isaiah, well, you know, what, what did Moses say? 
And so we may have to take them then to Moses. And very often when we do that, <clears throat> we'll take them to Leviticus. And we'll take them to Leviticus that says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. And so you say, to them, well, <clears throat> you had a day of atonement just very recently. Did, did you shed blood? What, what? No, 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 we don't do sacrifices today. Why, do you don't, why don't you do sacrifices? Well, the rabbis have told us that we don't need to do sacrifices anymore. But, but what did Leviticus say? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. And so what you're trying to do is, is not demean them, not just win the argument. Please, don't, when you're evangelizing anyone, don't just try and win the argument. Win the person. And it may be you might have to just step back a little and leave that one for another day. I'm, I'm, you know, you will know the Spirit will, will guide you, but there are times to seal a deal, there are times to sow a seed. And it may be you just want to sow a seed of, of doubt in someone's mind, a Jewish mind. Well, there's no, no how, how do we How do we get right with God? And then the next time we can carry that conversation. So sensitivity is, is necessary in all cross-cultural evangelism. Time to stop. Otherwise, the preacher will be starting to preach. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Please do avail yourself of all the literature that's there. I'm, yeah. I feel I, I feel I'm he, in good hands. Well, a, he said he was uh, better than some of the uh, Scotch bagpipers. No, oh, yeah. <laughs> wow, that's so cool. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Wonderful. Hi, Kathy. Nice to you. Thank you. We're having a small group, and we're having lunch first. Right. Yeah, I think uh, you know Matthew was saying that I need to be there. Four-ish, so uh, it's a 4:30 service. So, is it how far to Barnstable? Uh, from from our house, it's probably I don't know. Put it in your Google Maps. Depends on the traffic because there's only two groups that go over to the Well, I I think. Matthew was possibly, I don't know if he was going to, Matthew, can yes, I pick your brains? Yes. Lunch, what, yeah. was, what was the plan? I'm uh, just, am I going to just grab something along the way? Right. We're, we're oh. doing lunch with the trees, but for you to get to Barnstable, that's up and Right, is that, is that? Four? Four. I don't mind, you know, if it, so where's Barnstable, where's Barnstable to, uh, from wh where where are you then? Westford. Westford. Yeah. Westford. Oh, oh well, you, you, we could do it in our song too, probably, because yeah. we've been there to the open trees. Westford. All right. So let's see. So it's. Oh. So an R41. Uh, yeah, you should leave two hours. Two hours. So if you leave by two. Right. Well, yeah, so could do that. So sure. Oh, let's do that. Yeah. Do you have our address? I do, I do. It's on an email. Yeah, I'll do, let's do that because, uh, yeah. If I leave it, if, if I leave it two o'clock, I should be fine because it's four thirty. That's that's an hour forty. Should should be fine. Um, yeah, let's. Yes, yes.